Welcome to Abstract, colon, the future of science. I'm your host, Jeremy Ullman, and today, as always, we are bringing unprecedented accessibility to graduate research. We recorded in the past, you're listening in the present, and we're discussing the future of science. Enjoy the show. Before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of questions you can expect to be answered on today's episode. So, how can we age gracefully? What can we control and what's totally out of our hands when it comes to aging? How do we even define the aging process? How do rates of dementia vary across the population? And what's the impact of menopause on quality of life? As we age, does cognition become a use-it-or-lose-it phenomenon? What is frailty? And what is the Wisdom Exchange Project? Answers to questions like these and many, 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 many more on today's episode of Abstract. So, let's go. All right. Wow. Okay. This is absolute insanity. I cannot believe this is happening. What a dream come true. So I'm here today with a whole bunch of ladies who are all a part of something lovely called the Wisdom Exchange Project. We're going to get into the Wisdom Exchange Project a little bit later into the episode. But first and foremost, I want to just jump right into our discussion today. Okay. I want to get a bit of an open round table discussion going and get each of your take on the following question. Okay. What is the key or what is a key to aging gracefully from young adulthood through to old age? Any takers? Hey, I'm Emma. That's Emma Conway, a PhD candidate in public health at the University of Waterloo, Faculty of Health Sciences. Emma's research focuses on developing and evaluating innovative methods to improve the engagement in research of people living with dementia. She's a passionate advocate for improving the accessibility of research for older adults with complex health needs. Recently, Emma has been working with the Network for Aging Research to investigate the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on older adults living with dementia and their care partners. I think the most important thing about aging or when I think about aging gracefully is like, you don't have to. You don't have to age gracefully. Life is messy. Life is gross. Things happen that don't go to plan. And I think if you let go of trying to age perfectly, you'll age in your own perfect way and things will be a lot easier. So I think society could do a bit to loosen the restrictions on what's successful aging, what's optimal aging, what's graceful aging, and just kind of live. That's so interesting. I was not expecting that answer at all. Are you insinuating something along the lines of like, we should lower our expectations of how we'll age? Or do you think that there is currently an issue in the way that society deals with how we perceive the aging process? I think definitely the latter. I think there's a huge pressure on people of all ages and older adults to be successful in the way that they age and be fit and healthy and perfect. And that's just not how life is. If we can kind of reframe our expectations and, and kind of go with the flow and accept what comes, we can be happy with the way that we age no matter how that happens. Interesting. Hey, it's Lauren. That's Lauren Bashar, and she's completing her PhD in Aging, Health, and Well-Being in the Department of Kinesiology at the University of Waterloo. Lauren's research vision is more years lived well through choosing better. In her thesis, Lauren studies how lifestyle factors can support preventing and living well with dementia. Lauren's also conducting qualitative research on people with lived experience of dementia to explore what it means to live well with dementia and how to develop community support programs. I would definitely agree with Emma. It's not, we're not here to tell people how to age successfully or age gracefully. It's up for everyone to make that decision for themselves and really choose how they, how they do that as they age. Hi, it's Danielle. That's Danielle D'Amico. She's a PhD student in psychological science at Ryerson University and a trainee affiliate of the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration in Aging. Taking a lifespan approach, her research investigates the impact of chronic stress on cognitive health in older adulthood and whether healthy lifestyle behaviors such as diet intake, physical activity, and social engagement can minimize the harmful effects of stress on the brain and facilitate healthy cognitive aging. 
She's also passionate about bringing science to the general public through knowledge translation and community outreach. Yeah, I completely agree with Emma and Lauren. And coming from someone who studies stress and aging, a big part of stress and stress reduction and managing stress is really just acceptance and self-compassion for what's happening. It's not about eliminating all the bad things that happen in life and all the things that might contribute to poor aging or all the things that people are typically scared of. It's really just about embracing who you are and accepting the things that come. And that takes practice and that's not an easy thing, but I think that is a key to it for sure. I'm desperately trying to hold back and not just like completely just bulldoze all of these lovely ideas of self-care and like change the way we perceive this, but I'm going to hold off until I've heard from everybody first and then I'm, I'm, I'm going to just start, start digging in here. <laughs> hey, it's Alicia. That's Alicia Duval. She's a second year PhD student in the Department of Psychology at McGill University. She's studying the impact of menopausal transition on brain structure and cognition. Specifically, she aims to evaluate how individual differences in environment, life experiences, and hormones can mitigate age-related changes in cognitive function. Alicia is a clinical student who's passionate about adult neuropsychology, as well as individualized rehabilitation strategies for patients and caregivers. In terms of our individual differences in environment, in genetics, in life experiences, in hormones, those aren't things that we can necessarily control. I mean, life experiences and the lifestyle you choose, absolutely. But genetics and hormones, you're kind of, you get what you get. So I think I'm a little hesitant to dole out advice on how to age gracefully. It's not something that I, I would typically give advice on. Very interesting. I had absolutely no idea what the response would be to a question like this. It's also very interesting to know that you all are on a very similar page here. What about you, Monica? Hi, it's Monica. And that's Monica Vaillancourt. She's currently a PhD student in the Department of Psychology at McGill University, like Alicia. The main focus of her doctorate research is on the mental health of immigrant parents during the transitional period into parenthood. Specifically, her research examines the prevalence of distress, its determinants, and the impact of social stress among immigrants during pregnancy and the postpartum. Monica's passionate about knowledge dissemination and health promotion, a common theme among the women on this podcast. More specifically, she's interested in reducing the inequities in health and providing inclusive and community-sensitive services. Basically, I think it, it goes down to also the fact that for every person individually, um, what you consider being a fulfilled life is different. And I think it's similar when it comes to um, life transitions what you're expecting of those different periods uh, depends on what is exciting, interesting, and fulfilling for you as an individual. There's a theme that kind of came up in a lot of the answers that I just heard. I guess I could summarize it with one word, which is control. And this is this idea that there are certain things in life that we can control and certain things that we cannot. And there's almost a certain stoic theme that rears its head here in my mind in that at least one aspect of, you know, Stoic philosophy is that we don't get bogged down by the things that we can't control. And we only focus on things that we can. This is one way to live a, a happy life, potentially a fulfilling life. So maybe let's try and get an idea of what you think the things are that we can control in life. Because that will hopefully lead our discussion down a path of somewhat answering my first question in a sense of, you know, how can we age gracefully, well, maybe we should just focus on the things we can control. Hopefully that list isn't nil. So maybe we could start off with just a couple of popcorn ideas of what we have control over in the aging process. Yeah, definitely. I actually was going to jump in at the last part and say, that's not to say that no one's going to age gracefully or no one's going to age optimally or successfully. It's just what that means to people is different. For some people, it means, you know, doing the best with what you have. And for some people, it means, you know, being the absolute healthiest person on the planet. And so the goals of aging gracefully and aging successfully are different for every person. But I think Lauren will definitely be able to speak to this in terms of what we like to call modifiable risk factors. So eating well, exercising, doing all those things that can prepare our minds and bodies to age the best we can with what we've got. 
Yeah, definitely. And also coming from someone who studies lifestyle and specifically cognitive aging, but just aging in general, that we do consider these things as modifiable risk factors. So eating well, following what we call Mediterranean diet, engaging in physical activity, engaging socially with people that, you know, we want to connect with and that we love, engaging cognitively in things that challenge our brain in a good way. And we say that they're modifiable because we have direct control over those. You know, it's not like genetics or age where, you know, you get what you get, as Alicia said. But I think that there is something about those things being in our control that maybe puts the pressure off a little bit about aging gracefully and, you know, the stereotype of I'm going to get old, I'm going to get dementia, what do I do? My mom had dementia, now I'm going to have it, etc. So... You know, it it also really depends on how we define aging and aging can be physically, it could be cognitively. And we talk about these modifiable factors and it reminds me of this theoretical construct called cognitive reserve. And basically that's, it refers to how our individual differences in lifestyle, genetics, hormones, environment, it really impacts our ability to maintain normal cognitive processes in the presence of aging or pathology like Alzheimer's disease. And I don't want to sit here and give you a laundry list of items, but that can include things like leisure activities, social engagement, occupational attainment, education. So all of these things theoretically can lead to, quote unquote, more graceful aging. I'll kind of jump onto this and maybe suggest that instead of using the term graceful aging, we talk about resilient aging, for example. So this idea that you're picking up around control and trying to age gracefully and force something that ultimately is a very complex experience. And the older that you are, the more years you have on your belt, the more and more complex it gets. So in terms of resilient aging, it's about things that you can do throughout the life course that will give you that extra margin of health so that when things do happen, as they inevitably do, you have more of a capacity to deal with stressors without it having a negative impact on you, on your health and well-being. So what do we think about the dichotomy of like preventative measures versus what's the, what's the opposite of preventative? Reactionary. Yeah. Yeah. So what do we think about preventative versus reactionary measures? Which can we undertake more easily? Which ones are more effective? Go for it. I, that's It's a tough question because I think the way our society is right now, it's very reactionary. You know, you get sick, something happens, then you deal with it. And I think that prevention is better than reactionary treatment or, you know, behaviors because prevention is what helps build up resilience when things go wrong. Yeah, I, w- I would definitely say I'm in the prevention camp, you know, being a researcher who studies modifiable risk factors. Uh, The idea is, you know, you prevent something before it happens. But like Danielle was saying, prevention is tough. It's hard to motivate people to do something and take action against something that doesn't even exist yet and may not even exist in the future. So this idea of a reactive approach, it's much more concrete and easier for people to get behind because there's something you're acting against. But prevention is not sexy. It's hard to get people to eat their eat their vegetables all the time. (laughs) I don't know if it's just a function of human nature that we put things off. But at the same time, something that I've struggled with for, I guess, the latter half of my life is this fact that there are truthfully too many things for a single human being to focus on, to be a full, quote unquote, full person, to ensure that they prevent all the possible diseases, to ensure that they support all of the minority groups that exist out there, to ensure that their family is well taken care of, to ensure that their health comes into play, to ensure that they have fun, that they're financially stable. It's just, the list is literally infinite. And this is something that I personally struggle with. I don't know if if any of you are enlightened in this domain, but aging, at, at least maybe at our age, isn't something that's particularly front of mind, apart from the fact that you're all researching it. What kind of ways can we become more cognizant of the fact that there's no better time than now to start planning for the future. I agree that there's way too much to focus on. And I feel like there's maybe multiple camps of people, but at least two. The camps that try their best to, you know, hit as many of those domains as possible and be awesome. And then the camps like me who just get completely overwhelmed and just do none of them. So I think respecting and just learning how to value your own life and 
and kind of reflect on the experiences of older people in your life and kind of try to draw that trajectory and having that mentality be one of like pride and strength and not like a fear-based thing, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like don't be scared of tomorrow because you can control today and, and potentially what happens tomorrow. So kind of be empowered by that choice. Making fear-based decisions, that is an uphill battle. You are making it more difficult to motivate yourself if you're acting out of fear. So Jeremy, around your idea of, you know, how do I prioritize when there is this laundry list of things I need to do every day to be well and age in a way that makes sense for me, make it easy on yourself. Pick things that feel good to you and aren't a struggle and you don't feel like you need to have a lot of external motivation. So for example, if you love music, Playing an instrument is a great form of cognitive engagement. You don't have to go out of your way and make it more challenging and effortful to go play an instrument because it's fun. You have to make it fun. It's, it's your life at the end of the day. <laughs> you have to enjoy the years. Yeah, and you really want to avoid prescribing yourself a list of items to do because you don't want to essentially set yourself up for failure. You know, I, I know I've had times where I've written a list of 10 things to do and I only do two of them in a day. And I'm like, ugh, like why? Like I couldn't get anything done. I didn't do anything today. But that being said, motivation and energy come from action from a clinical perspective anyway. But you also want to engage in things that are meaningful to you and that have value to you to really live a fulfilling life. I personally find value in making laundry lists of things to do and then trying to accomplish all of them. <laughs> So maybe I, I find myself kind of caught between a rock and a hundred different hard places, but... As, as long as it doesn't stress you out, because I think we can all know, like from each of our backgrounds, that stress is one of those really important factors that are predictive in terms of like adverse psychological and physical health outcomes. And just the way you described like at the beginning, all those different things that you have to keep in mind in order to be healthy... When you see it like that, it is quite distressing and stressful. So I think the advice that the other ladies have given about finding activities that are fun and engaging for you personally is a really good idea. And if that is making lists, then there you go. But if it's not, then maybe, you know, looking for another way to, to live a healthy life. Yeah, I can appreciate that there's no one size fits all solution. As someone who has studied science for many, many years, it's always very tantalizing to read an academic paper that tries to explain a large concept with just one single kind of panacea, one single node in the brain where something's happening to explain uh, an entire behavior, and it's never the whole picture. So I can appreciate this multimodal approach that we've been discussing here. Of course, we can keep going over the list of all of the good things that we know we're supposed to do, but what boggles my mind is that it, it seems like not only the six people on this call, but most people that I speak to are pretty well aware of what's good for them. Yet, like Alicia said, with her list of 10 things to do that I assume weren't necessarily extremely difficult to accomplish, it's just life happens. Even though some things are so obvious to us, we need constant reinforcement and often don't get that. I think a way to get a really good perspective and to get some insight is to just chat with someone who's already lived it. We're not walking this path alone, and this kind of ties into the Wisdom Exchange Project. Um, there are people that have walked before us that are still living today that could probably shed some light and perspective on maybe which of those task items we should pick. Absolutely, and I think the age-old saying of everything in moderation, you know, like you have a week or two where you're not exercising and lazing around and even though that might be what you need in the moment it's important not to like beat yourself up over that that that's fine that's okay give yourself some grace have some self-compassion it's not gonna kill you <laughs> i just have to pop in here because i'm hearing some things that like di directly go against my entire life philosophy and maybe it's not that that extreme but while i do agree we should have flexibility in our lives, in all domains, for sure. We don't want to be drill sergeants for ourselves. But I'd like to say that I do disagree with the fact that if we want to go two weeks and just eat McDonald's and pizza, because that's just what we want to do, my question is always, is it though? And there's something, there's, there's a, a, just kind of this giant schism between things that we want and things that we know are good for us. 
And I, I have this 24-hour internal struggle, basically, about, you know, what should I be doing? Should I be just kind of satisfying my inner needs? Or should I be satisfying, potentially, the needs of my future self? And this sense of delayed gratification is, is something that provides a lot of conflict, but also a, a lot of growth for me. So if you're struggling on what to do, make your list and decide what item you value more and do that. Oh, I guess I guess maybe I wasn't 100% clear. These aren't like big life decisions. I'm saying, you know, let's say I'm making the decision between cooking dinner at home and ordering in. 99 times out of 100, I'll just make the meal at home. And then for some reason or another, I'll take the alternate route. But I do like, I, I almost enjoy engaging in that dual opportunity as opposed to just defaulting into one or the other. I, I also do feel like our, our discussion is kind of de derailing just a little bit. Yeah. Should I do what's good and what's bad? It's like, why does Jeremy like torturing himself so much? That's what's going through my head right now. Like just, just take the cognitive load out of the decision-making, change your environment so that you are enabled to make the decision that you want to make. Unless you really enjoy torturing yourself, like, oh, do I make home home-cooked meals tonight that are delicious nutritious do i go get that papa john's like <laughs> yeah just have it ready like meal prep take the decision out of out of the stressful point there's definitely this like cognitive load that i just like to bear <laughs> but that's that's more of one of the idiosyncrasies that, that that we spoke about before everyone's different it's a different kind of research yeah so i, I do just want to get a little bit into some of the more specific research topics that you have been exploring all of you for the last few years and we'll continue to do into the near future just to kind of drop some some ideas and maybe we can kind of just pick upon these one by one but the topics that have come up throughout your research are things like stress dementia we have menopause as well and also the immigrant experience especially in terms of transitions uh, into parenthood i mean we could do a whole podcast just about parenting even though I'm not a parent, I, I like to imagine myself as one and like think about what that would be like. So I would love to get some perspectives on parenting. If anybody here is a parent or has parents, that would be cool. But of these topics, like who who's just like gunning right now to just hop into stress, dementia, menopause, or the immigrant experience in terms of life transitions? So my research focuses on stress and its effects on brain health, cognitive function in older adults, as well as how stress interacts with these healthy lifestyle behaviors that we've talked about so much to reduce the likelihood of cognitive problems in older adulthood. So specifically, my research focuses on chronic stress. So when we talk about stress, I think there's a lot of, you know, we see the word stress and it's negative, it's bad. Actually, if we kind of dive deep into what stress is doing in our body and how our stress physiology works, stress is actually good for us. Like it was adapted for a reason. We want a stress response. Acute stress actually can be a little bit good for our performance. It's this long-term stress or chronic stress that builds throughout the lifespan and throughout long periods of time that can actually start having these negative effects on our brain and our body. So what um, my research is hoping and will hope to do is look at the cumulative effect of stress from early life all the way into later life and that effect on cognitive function. And then if these healthy lifestyle behaviors that we've been speaking about, so eating well, exercising, engaging socially, maintaining good sleep patterns, being mindful in our self-care, if that can actually minimize the effect of accumulated life stress on our cognitive function in older adults. So this idea of, is it, is it ever too late? So maybe not. We'll see. I already like the fact that um, what, what I've just observed is someone who has a specific research focus ties the entire world into their research focus. I can imagine if I spoke to somebody in this room about dementia, they'd say, okay, well, of course, if you eat healthy and you engage in cognitive behaviors that, you know, are, uh, that are helpful and you do X, Y, Z, that's going to reduce your likelihood of developing dementia. And then if I speak to somebody else who speaks about parenthood, well, if you do X, Y, Z, that's going to make parenthood easier. And it's a, that's going to facilitate this part of your life. So exactly. I can appreciate that. I, I mean, I, I don't even see that in a, in a, in a bad way. I, I think everything in life, all the things that we're going to talk about today are all interrelated. That's why it's important to take a lifespan approach. I think when we're talking about health and aging or health and social contact and the wisdom exchange program that we'll talk about that a lifespan approach really just gets it's just so much more rich 
Yeah, I, I was just going to say, Jeremy, that I think where a lot of areas where our research intersects is there's a lot that we already know about how for aging well and aging in a, in a good state of health. But like we were talking about earlier, make that, making those decisions, both enabling people to make the decisions that they want to make in the long term for, uh, for their health as they age, as well as creating the decisions so that you can actually choose healthy things. It's not just you only have one option. For example, with nutrition, okay, I only eat this one thing because I have a limited access to go and get groceries because I can't drive because I lost my license because I have dementia. So around, it's, it's more than just this one specific facet of how do you age well. It's enabling the uh, aging well process. A lot of us researchers, we have this expertise by profession, this expertise by knowledge, but what we don't have is the lived experience. We probably are not walking the same journey as a lot of the older adults that we study. And there are so many different things that intersect across the life course in the moment that produce you know, different experiences of life. And so my research really focuses on how do we capture that? How do we learn from people living with dementia? What methods are most appropriate in research? Because we know a lot of people living with dementia can struggle with recall, you know, remembering past events, remembering what's happened over the life course. So how do we accurately capture these lived experiences and bring them forward into our research and learn about, you know, these different things that impact our ability to age in whatever way we do? The thing with aging, it's inevitable that we're going to experience some type of cognitive decline, whether that's memory or executive function. So things like planning or judgment. But as it was mentioned, taking a lifespan approach is really important because the population that I study is midlife. And midlife is a time where women transition into menopause. And this is inevitable for females. So at this time, you know, you experience things that are out of your control, like a decrease in estrogen, and that's been linked to cognitive changes and also altered brain structure and function. So I've been trying to figure out ways and how women can better cope with these changes and mitigate cognitive decline in either memory or executive function. Are there higher rates of dementia in women due to things like menopause? So Alzheimer's disease, which is the leading cause of dementia, is actually considered a woman's disease. And two-thirds of the people who have Alzheimer's disease are women. So we are at a far greater risk of developing Alzheimer's disease, even when you take into consideration sex differences in life expectancy, because women, we tend to live longer than men. So yes, we're definitely at a higher risk. And um, it's it's thought that estrogen is neuroprotective in that sense. So, you know, that sudden reduction in estrogen following menopause, that also can increase risk for Alzheimer's disease. Wow. I feel like this ties back to what Danielle said earlier about everything in moderation. It's almost like women have, have this kind of increased level of estrogen throughout the entire first half of their life. And even though that doesn't cause any problems, it's the decrease. It's like kind of the sudden change that then brings about this ill effect. When you think about puberty, for example, like your brain experiences a surge in hormones and your brain changes. Same thing, menopause, you're experiencing a decrease in hormones and your brain is altered. So ultimately you're like clinically and outcome wise, there's, there's alterations and a lot of women they report increased forgetfulness or this brain fog associated with their menopausal transition. And it's, it, it can definitely impact quality of life. When we talk about women being at higher likelihood of Alzheimer's disease, there's a lot of unknowns right now. Like this is a huge area of research and we don't we have ideas, but we don't fully know why, but we know that yes, it is the effects of estrogen, but also like sociocultural factors and how women who are older adults now grew up. So we know that early life education is a big predictor of cognitive function and risk of dementia. And we know that decades ago, women tend to have had lower edu educational attainment in early life. So we talked about, you know, things being multifactorial. That's another example of that. Hmm. And also... Monica, she's studying a lot to do with uh, women in pregnancies and parents and parity, meaning how many children one has had can also increase your risk for Alzheimer's. So there's so many factors associated with it. It feels almost limitless. That actually got me to thinking about 
what co-occurs often during menopause is the fact that your children are older at that point. You're having to be less involved in their life, having to remember less about, you know, their soccer practices and having to remind them to do their homework at this point. They're probably in college living independently. So I'd be interested in hearing, Alicia, if if there's anything about that with regards to, you know, like having less responsibilities. I know that in older adults, when they retire and they have less responsibilities, there is a reduction in anxiety in general in the population. It'd be interesting to see what the impact is in terms of parenting during that shift for a woman's life. You are going from, you know, engaging in something that has a higher cognitive load or higher cognitive engagement to something that, you know, you're no longer having to think prospectively about all these responsibilities that you have. So it's an interesting question. I'm not too sure what the answer is, but it'd be worth looking into. Mm -hmm. I I think in part that would likely be tempered by professional roles of women at midlife as well. Like you think about women who have hopefully maintained their position in the workforce throughout parenthood, if that's something that they choose to do. Like just because you're not parenting anymore at midlife doesn't mean you don't have a ton of cognitive stimulation. And also women who choose not to have children, but focus more on their profession or other areas of their of their life. Like, I, I think parenting is definitely part of the, the obvious cognitive change there. But you also don't stop worrying about your kids once they go off to university, as I'm sure I again, I cannot speak yeah. to that. I don't have any children in university, but my mom, <laughs> she didn't stop. <laughs> yeah. But I think often what happens, and I'm not studying that population of parents of older children or young adults, but often, you know, there's that thing of like out of sight, out of mind. Like I know that when, you know, you're at home and they're seeing the things that you're engaging in or like at what time you get home from wherever, things like that, that can be more stressful. Whereas when they're not aware of what's happening, maybe that might be more stressful for certain people, but... It was just something that I thought about when I was hearing you uh, talk about your research, Alicia, that it might be interesting to examine. It's a really interesting question, actually. If I could look at it, I would. (laughs) You know, we know that women are disproportionately impacted by experiences of dementia, both being diagnosed as well as in a caregiving role for spouses and that type of thing or caring for their parents. But that's not to say that dementia is a normal part of aging. It's not. It it doesn't happen to everyone as they get older. I think that's a common misconception and a piece of stigma that has traversed time. It's it's out there. Um, And something else that I wanted to touch on based on this kind of idea, this like use it or lose it mentality, whereas if we're not cognitively engaged, are we going to lose cognitive function? And there's arguments for either side. I mean, certainly we have seen especially in populations of older adults, that increased cognitive load can actually cause dementia in terms of thinking about hearing loss. If you're really struggling to hear and you have a huge cognitive load of trying to perceive sounds and be engaged in social conversation, that's actually been linked to the development of dementia. So while I'm sure there's arguments for, you know, not having a high cognitive load could lead to that use it or lose it type of situation. There's arguments for the opposite too, where if we do have super high levels of stress and you know we're experiencing some age-related changes with hearing and vision, the increased cognitive load that can come along with that can actually you know worsen the impacts on our brain. Right. And it's it's also important to realize that a lot of the times these changes can be associated with risk, but risk doesn't necessarily mean you're going to develop dementia or Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, from from a research perspective, there's definitely a conundrum, and this is something that I've come across in, in part of my thesis research, is there are so many things to look at. Like if you try and throw everything you should consider in a model, A, it's unwieldy, your analysis won't run, you will like melt your computer, but also, you end up coming up with a result that everything is significant, but nothing is meaningful when you consider it as a one-off item. So in some initial research I did on the Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging, I looked at how individual factors were associated with physical activity behaviors in Canadian adults aged 45 years and older. And what I found was that, yeah, great, ton of significant variables, wonderful. But when you look at the equation as a whole for predicting whether or not someone will meet the Canadian Physical Activity uh, Recommendation Guidelines, prediction was slightly better than chance. 
So when we're thinking about aging and how can we understand how people engage in these health promotion behaviors, thinking of it as one-off things like, oh, it's gender, oh, it's retirement status. No, that's not going to yield to something very meaningful in the long term. It's significant, yes, but meaningful in the grand scope of something as complex as aging is really challenging to get at. And so one way that Canadian research especially has tried to get around that is through looking at these composite risk factors. So something like frailty or social vulnerability, where essentially you have these specific kind of items graded on a scale of zero to one. So do you have this risk present or absent? And then from those individual items, you create a composite score. So this could be like your frailty index, for example. And that has actually uh, been shown to be independently associated with your uh, risk of disease and risk of mortality and aging above and beyond disability. So when you consider all these tiny little things that add up over the long time um, in one kind of composite measure, that's actually a really useful way to look at something as complex as aging. What do we mean by frailty, though? It sounds like you just kind of, like you tried to beat the system yes. by, by renaming some construct that is more like an umbrella <laughs> term. So, uh, well, actually, I'll, I'll turn that question around back on, on you and maybe try and get some of the perspective of other researchers on the call, is what do you think frailty means, Jeremy? What's your understanding of frailty? Me? Uh, yeah. Or the other Jeremy on the call? <laughs> <laughs> uh, frailty, I guess, I think of that probably twofold, mentally and physically. So we've spoken about cognitive decline. We've all spoken about physical decline. And to me, those are kind of the two big facets of one's, one's being that change over time in big ways, how we think and how we, how we move. So frailty means a decline in both of those things. Interesting. I don't know. What, what are some of the thoughts about the other uh, people on the call around frailty? I don't study frailty, but it comes across in my research here and there. But it's a, an index of accumulated risk over time. And I know that's like a very textbook definition. So I usually like to try and understand things in terms of like their matched pair. So the opposite of frailty would be like strength and resilience. And so having a high score on a frailty index would indicate something in the direction that is opposite to strength and resilience. Yeah. So frailty, the, the way that I conceptualize it, and that's, a really good point of it is it's not a happy sounding word. No one hears frailty and thinks of, you know, someone who's very strong and able to age in a way that they choose. Frailty really is an ability to respond to stressors in your life. So having this margin of health where you can deal with something as it comes up, if you get sick, you will get better in the long term. You won't have this downward spiral of things accumulating, ultimately resulting in a poor health state. Mm -hmm. How can I phrase this? Monica, maybe you can speak to this. In the case of an immigrant parent, do we see higher incidences of frailty? Is this even a factor in your research? How does pregnancy and birth increase or change our risk factor for becoming more frail? Frailty, I, I don't know how that's impacted by um, stress and pregnancy, but yeah. <laughs> okay. No problem. Yeah. I don't know either. But uh <laughs> What I look at, it's the age group of a lot of our volunteers, you know, people in their 20s and their 30s. And for a lot of people, they become a parent and becoming a parent is a huge stressor, but not all stressors are negative. So um, it is typically seen as a joyful event and life transition. But with that also comes a lot of stigma around the parents that do experience adverse mental health during that period, particularly when we're thinking of immigrants in North America, a lot of that population isn't aware of what we consider symptoms of depression, anxiety, stress. And so it's hard to recognize for them. And it's also hard to recognize because in certain cultures, there's a lot of stigma surrounding mental health. And particularly during a period where you're becoming a mother and a father, where you're expected to be happy all the time, you know, that you're bringing this new life into the world. So it raises a lot of issues in terms of intervening in that population. And it is really important to intervene early on because when we're talking about the impact that that distress has on the offspring, 
it's significant in terms of school performance, the relationships that they have later on in life. So parental involvement is significantly impacted by their well-being. If they're, for example, experiencing stress during pregnancy, that can increase their chance of gestational complications like preeclampsia and gestational diabetes, and that is a well-known predictor of developing type 2 diabetes afterwards or other health problems. And then there it goes to affecting their life on the long term and their their health and their aging. I guess that kind of rolls around to things that we can't really control. You can't control if you're going to get postpartum depression. You can't control which attachment style you're going to develop. You know, fathers too, a lot of the times, if a child is born in NICU, they don't really know how to be of help, and that can be very stressful too. So these are things that, you know, we can't really control, and does that contribute to ungraceful aging? You know, who who knows? Yeah. You brought up the point about fathers, and fathers in general tend to be overlooked as central to family life compared to mothers. Now that's changing a bit more, but in terms of immigrant fathers, there's almost no research out there looking at how they're impacted by migratory stressors and this experience of going through both the transition of becoming a parent as well as the transition of living in a whole different society and culture. It's this huge piece of the puzzle that we've ignored in the past. I think that actually ties really well into, you know, the project that we've all been working on, the Wisdom Exchange Project, and thinking about the specific types of stigma that older adults face in terms of maintaining well-being. In terms of the Wisdom Exchange Project that we've all been working on, it has so many different facets, but one of them is to promote this idea of wisdom and this wisdom exchange and to promote, you know, the empowerment of older adults and sharing their wisdom and the value that they can bring to our lives as younger adults um, and to learn from their experiences and, and kind of reframe the idea of wellness and well-being across the lifespan. As I mentioned earlier, I think it's amazing to learn from people that have walked before us and can share their experiences with mental health and well-being and, and how those things have changed over the course of their life and so maybe it's a good point in time now to maybe chat a little bit more about the Wisdom Exchange Project and what it's about. 100%. So let's maybe switch gears over here. Thank you so much for um, part one of today's discussion. From what I know about the Wisdom Exchange Project, it started pretty recently back in November of 2020. And it's essentially a social exchange initiative uh, that pairs graduate students with older adults in their communities. And the goal is mainly to kind of build stronger relationships, share ideas, and have this knowledge transmission from top down generation wise. What's unique about the Wisdom Exchange Project is that it's built on an idea of having mutually beneficial friendships and partnerships between older adults and people who are earlier in the lifespan. So we say graduate students, but in reality, that can range from anyone who's kind of in their mid-20s all the way into midlife and even as an older adult as well. Cool. And that's that's a lot different than a lot of other programs that have sprung up in as a result of COVID-19 and social isolation of older adults is that this is not focused on doing a community service or service provision for older adults. It is really truly meant to be um, a mutually beneficial partnership. So in this way, we're having hopefully a positive impact at multiple areas of, of the life course. So earlier in life, learning about all these things about how you can support yourself into aging in a way that you choose, but also as an older adult to feel a sense of uh, fulfillment and sustained social engagement in a time when that has been significantly altered from how it's been previously done. So how do we pair people? Both the older adults who are interested and the graduate student volunteers fill out a survey online. And there's questions just about what you want to get out of the program, what are your interests and hobbies, what languages do you speak, etc. And then we pair people based on what their preferences are. So some people want to be paired on similar hobbies. Some don't have a preference. They just want to be paired with whoever. And then we, in the, so the volunteers go through an online training session. So after they've, they're done the training session, we introduce the volunteers to their older adult partners via email and just kind of let it take off from there. We check in just to make sure 
things are going well and no hiccups have come up, but yeah. And just kind of let an organic friendship build however it may. That's awesome. So given that this is all online, presumably I don't need to be in a specific location to be a part of this. Um, how can I or the listeners sign up? Oh, so you said there's a link on the website. So I'm definitely going to put that in the description for today's episode. Otherwise, is there a limitation based on where people are located? Or can this be done really from anywhere across Canada or the United States? Correct me if I'm wrong. I think at the moment we're doing Ontario and Quebec. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's correct. We are a small but mighty team right now. (laughs) And uh, like we were talking about with the matching, all of the matching is done by a human, not by an algorithm. So mm-hmm. with the idea of expansion, that gets a it gets very challenging to do. Um, so ideally, we can scale up in the future. But for now, we're focusing on Ontario and Quebec. Baby steps. I guess the larger your kind of paired population grows, maybe the more analytics you could run on how like on people's feedback. So we can see how happy people were based on their connection, based on what kind of what kind of criteria were used to pair them. And that could be integrated into an algorithm. We don't need to get into the algorithm for comparing people. (laughs) But I think this is a super cool initiative. And I guess my interpretation initially was somewhat wrong about this more unidirectional nature of older populations sharing with younger. But I really love this fact that it it is bidirectional, mutually beneficial. And um, of course, it is just one more thing to add to our long list of things to do to make our lives full and great and awesome. But I mean, that's not something that would go to the top of a lot of people's lists. So that's excellent. Mm-hmm. You know, to add to that mutually beneficial piece that you said, I was speaking to an older adult during our transition period where people were signing up, but we hadn't launched the program yet. And it was really beneficial. We started off on phone call and then we ended off in Zoom. So we were meeting on video conference and he was teaching me how to play chess. And so I picked up a new hobby and I learned how to play chess and he was teaching me about politics. So it was really interesting. Um, And I, you know, I do definitely miss that one hour a week session that we had, but it was a lot of fun, definitely mutually beneficial. And hopefully I was able to to benefit him in some way as well. Absolutely. And just some like informal feedback that we've gotten so far. People love it. We have about 25 people paired up and feedback from both the grad student volunteers. We have a couple postdocs as well. So if you're a postdoc, you're still able to sign up. And the older adults, they, they just love having someone to talk to, especially right now when social isolation and feeling lonely is just so pervasive with the pandemic. I think just linking it back to research and graduate students, it is amazing to have the opportunity to practice talking about your research to a non-academic audience. And that is something that the Wisdom Exchange is really promoting. We have research seminars where our graduate student partners can present their research to our older adult partners and kind of practice knowledge translation. And so it's about thinking bigger. It's it is very nice to have, you know, you know, these ways to address social isolation and having someone to talk to and learning new skills. But there are real world things that we can work on, too, in these relationships that can really benefit us as researchers, while at the same time promoting social engagement, which can have great, great positive impacts for older adults as well. So I think it's a really interesting way to pair people and have, you know, mutual development of skills at the same time. So I've got a final question for everybody, which is, I want you to imagine yourselves down the line. Wisdom Exchange Project is like 8 million people strong at this point, okay? But you're now the older adult and you're being paired with a graduate student. On your first call, what is one thing that you would love to tell that graduate student get the dog get the dog I know you think you have no time you think you have no time you're so busy but just get the dog your life is going to be way better it's going to make you get outside you're going to have a little furry friend 24 7 just get the dog (laughs) I love it okay I think I would say something along the lines of like life is good enjoy it well you can But I don't know what I would say because I don't know what my life is going to be like for the next, whatever, 30 years until I'm an older adult. So that's a really good question. (laughs) 
you know, definitely something along the lines and things that I, I tend to tell my friends and my family is, this is your journey, you know, don't compare your journey to other people, embrace it, do what makes you feel good. If something makes you feel bad, get rid of it. It'll go away. It's transient. You know, when things are down, it's temporary. Things get better. Enjoy it. Do what's meaningful. Figure out what's valuable. Cool. What I would tell them would probably end up being things that I've heard from people that also have done doctoral studies, which is to really enjoy this period of your life because when you're in it, it feels really overwhelming there and really stressful. And we're kind of like looking forward to that next step of like being on the job market and working and getting that house that all our friends already have and things like that. But really enjoying this period because it's a very unique experience. There's a lot of independence to this experience in terms of studying things that interest you, doing side projects on other things that interest you, like participating in this project, for example. And life goes by so quickly. We get so busy with multiple things. So I would say, yeah, enjoy this period of your life while it lasts, because in reality, it's going to go by so quickly and enjoy it to the fullest. I feel inspired. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't think you were expecting to get such a like positive and agreeable group of researchers when you're talking about modifiable risk factors. You're looking for us to say, okay, do this, don't do this. But ultimately, like what I, I agree with what everyone else said here. I would tell the younger graduate student version of, of myself to choose happiness. Happiness does not happen by accident. It will not just fall into your lap. You have to make time to understand what makes you happy. So coming back to the idea of want versus should do, really understand why there's a distinction between the two and align yourself to choose what makes you happy because at the end of the day, that's what you're going to look back on and enjoy. So good. <laughs> oh, it's great. Great. Thank you so much, all of you, for being here today. I know that with all of our brains put together, we could probably sit here for 24 hours straight fasting and talking about science and diving deeper and deeper into each individual research project. However, just in the interest of time and brevity and getting everybody's opinions, I think we're going to call it a day here. So I just wanted to thank you all again for coming to the listeners. There's going to be links to be able to sign up for the Wisdom Exchange project or just check it out and then see what it's like and pass it on to your friends. Link to that in the description of the episode. I look forward to hearing what you think about it. Any closing remarks before we say goodbye? Thank you for having thank us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for inviting us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Everybody have a great afternoon. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at AbstractCast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at AbstractCast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.